HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear words they're saying Only the echoes of my mind People stop and stare Hello there. Welcome to the Heritage Radio Network Farm Report. Friday, September 11th. I'm Lorenzo Reginieri. This is my co-host Heather Hyman. And we're here with special guest Matt Lorenz today of Trees Not Trash. Um, We'd like to give a special shout out to our sponsor today, Paradise Locker Meats, who help uh, butcher for small independent family farms across the country. And we thank them for sponsoring today's episode, as well as our engineer in the back there, Nat Wiener. Matt is a graduate of the the NYU Tisch School. And he works with Trees Not Trash, which is a nonprofit that starts and manages community gardens. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining us on the on the Farm Report today. The pleasure is all mine. So we're going to touch on a lot of topics, <clears throat> including your work with Trees Not Trash. Uh, we're going to do a little DIY on uh, making your roof more green, on improving your stormwater collection and management. Mm-hmm. Which is perfect for today, considering we've got about three days of stormy uh Rainwater coming our way here yeah, in Bushwick. I finally got here, right? Finally. Mm-hmm. You've been waiting. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners, I didn't really know what Trees Not Trash was before today, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't really know. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what Trees Not Trash gets done? Sure. Uh, TNT is a Bushwick-based uh, collective uh, of gardeners, um, kind of with the emphasis being community gardens, urban greenification, that sort of thing. Uh, it's been around since I believe, I mean, my involvement has been the last three years or so, but I think Kate, the founder, put it together a year or two before my involvement, before I moved here. Um, we're on the road to becoming a full-scale nonprofit. That's what we had kind of in our winter off season when we're doing less uh, working in the gardens. We actually were hunkering down once a month and we've got a, a lawyer that's getting us squared away with our whole pro bono, like getting us all uh, non-profited, so to speak. Um, but what we do is we, we look for and we um, manage community gardens that are not truly public gardens in the sense that they're open all the time. Um, they're gardens that have certain set hours where anybody's welcome to come in to check out what's going on, to help out if they're so inclined, or just to learn about what you could be doing with a big vacant lot, of which there are quite a few in this uh, fine region of Bushwick, Brooklyn. 
And does it extend past Bushwick to the the other boroughs? It oh. sure does. We uh, we sometimes we'll uh, head up to the Bronx. We have a really interesting relation with um, a number of um, like nurseries um, with Parks and Rec actually. Uh, every now and then we'll go up to the Bronx to select a number of trees that they will essentially donate to us for our purposes, which works out great for them. Uh, this group of characters down in Bushwick decide they want to put in a couple of new trees or add a couple of new shrubs to a community garden. It's essentially the sort of work that they're doing that they're getting paid to do, but they don't have to actually do anything. So all they do is we drive my truck up there, we fill it up with foliage, we bring it down, and then we distribute them. So we're, uh, yeah, that's true. We, we actually work with Citizens, which is, I believe, based in Manhattan, but they have things that's all in the five boroughs. Um, we sometimes, um, we just started an alliance with the, uh, the Bushwick, one of the Bushwick branches of the um, public library in Brooklyn, which we're really excited about. We yes. uh, already have a bunch of stuff in the ground over there, and we're working on a young gardeners program to get the kids in the area excited about the idea that, hey, you can make that yourself, or you can increase the amount of green stuff in your neighborhood, and it helps everybody out. So it's really Are awesome. Are schools next on the list after the library? We, um, we're trying to prototype um, a project. We just got, um, I don't know enough about it yet, but Kate just mentioned that we have um, an alliance that could work out really favorably for everybody with one of the, I believe, middle schools or um, high schools. It might even be up to ninth graders, hmm. where their instructor wants to take them one or two days a week to the community gardens. And perhaps even to initiate a little gardening project, um, either in one of the schools or, you know, some nearby area. Yeah, so. it would cost them less money to do it in their own backyard, probably, than take a field trip to a community garden. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I, I'm actually not even sure where they're at. So if they're, if they're local, it would be easy for them. And then, you know, we'd even, heck, we'd even roll out there. And, you know, we'd sometimes do little um, DIY, like seed bomb demonstrations where we <laughs> show people how to make seed bombs, which are, um, I guess I shouldn't be mentioning that in a day like today. But basically, it's <laughs> no. a... It's a it's a clay ball that has wild seeds inside of it um, that is resistant to water until it rains really hard, which is enough to saturate the rest of the soil. So you look at a big field or you look at some sort of region that nobody can really get to, mm -hmm. but it'd be nice to see a couple of colorful flowers in there. You just carry some in your back pocket and throw them over the fence, and then when it rains... Renegade tree growers. There you go. Well, I'm not sure about trees, but certainly little tufts of wildflowers. I mean, okay. trees would be considerably harder because they're, they need to germinate generally. Right. Um, but I'm sure the, the tree bomb is probably the next uh, the next project. Okay, to work on. fine. Well, that's cool. <laughs> that's definitely very interesting and different from anything I've heard before. It's fun stuff. So I understand your expertise spills over into other areas of of gr urban greening. Mm -hmm. um, I understand you're an expert in in stormwater collection. And mm -hmm. uh, so explain to us what role collecting stormwater plays in in the in the footprint of a city, and what if what measures cities have to take to reduce their impact on overall global warming by by making their stormwater collection more efficient and what individuals can do you know not to necessarily execute a full green roof but how they can make a small difference in the overall mm -hmm. impact well i guess um the the easiest example for me to talk about um would be just to talk about the little green roof uh, prototype that i have on my own building uh, just right up the street uh it's only about 25 foot by 25 foot just the standard, you know, Brooklyn rooftop with just a bunch of black tar, um, nothing particularly distinguishing about it. It gets hot in the summer. Um, in the winter, there's snow on it. Um, there might be, you know, a bottle or two out there left over from barbecue, but that's pretty mm -hmm. much it. I think anybody that lives in the city probably either sees these out of their window or can approach them pretty easily from their own place. On our building, over the last three years or so, I've gradually started to, I guess I won't call it a green roof per se, 
A green roof, according to the kind of technical definition, is where you literally have uh, the roofing membranes inspected for their load-bearing capacity. You have uh, a root barrier put in. You have a growing medium brought in. It can be, it's a very uh, extensive or intensive um, project that can cost a lot of money. Its long-term benefits are are amazing uh, in terms of keeping uh, it cooler during the summertime, warmer in the wintertime, uh, stormwater management, which I'll get to in a second. But if you don't have so the ener- resources, more energy, efficient. energy efficient, as well as the, the main thing is, um, is kind of keeping urban heat blight, which is, or, or I think it's called urban uh, heat island blight or something. I think I'm re-scrambling that term a little bit, mm. but it's essentially the phenomenon that surrounds larger cities where in the absence of uh, trees and pastures and meadows and so forth, you have concrete and steel and tar. Uh, they're generally of a darker color. A lot of emphasis these days is being put on making a white roof, which is a transition towards a green roof. It's simply just painting it white. Like in Greece. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, if you look at exactly a lot of hot Mediterranean areas, it's all white. Just reflect it out. You do not want to be in a dark colored place when you're dealing with 100 plus degree temperatures. So a white roof is kind of a transition towards a green roof. But on our roof, it's not really a green roof as much as it's just a whole mess of um, handmade, um, generally from recycled materials, planter boxes that I built myself um, or that I've helped to build. Um, we sometimes have workshops how to build these things with Trees Not Trash. We go up to, um, we get a lot of uh, wood donated mm-hmm. from a place that I should plug uh, called um, Build It Green up in uh, Astoria, which is in Queens. Amazing place nice. to buy like extra stuff. They'll earmark wood for us. We get it donated to Trees Not Trash. We build planter boxes and then we put them in places where you can't actually get something in the ground or even if you could get something in the ground, you might not want to have it in the ground because we do live in an area where there's a lot of nasty stuff. Right. So you want to put your own soil in that plant. Put your own soil that you know where it came from. And especially if you're growing stuff uh, that you're going to eat. But anyway, the idea of managing stormwater occurred to me when I looked at the side of my building. So to to lay it out for you, there's our like 25 by 25 roof deck. That's essentially the garage roof. Then there's another two in the second and third floor. And then on top of that, there's a 40 by 25 foot essentially just the top part of the roof with the parapet wall, silverized paint, the whole thing. A big four-inch downspout, which is just the conduit for the water during a storm, goes down and then it would just spill right onto our secondary roof. At some point a couple of years ago, I had seen it done elsewhere and I was like, wow, wouldn't it be a great idea to redirect that four-inch downspout into first one big basin and then later, you know, as it is now, there's a, there's a network of four basins. Um, you've seen that trick where there's a bunch of wine glasses and you pour in the top one and it dripples yeah. in the next one. Yeah, like the next they have one. at weddings exactly. or champagne. We've got, we've got a version of that going right outside the building. So essentially the first main reservoir will fill up, which is, I believe, a 50-gallon drum. Okay. And, then it, and then I have two little plumbing. I do a lot of little DIY plumbing projects. So there's two little necks that are 90-degree necks that will distribute the water to the next one. Then it'll go into the next one. So essentially a good 20-minute downpour, the likes of which pretty much June was characterized by here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. we could fill that. It would fill up to the top in maybe 20 minutes. So, for example, last night, pretty much a light rain. We were bone dry yesterday. Now mm-hmm. I've got about 200 gallons worth of water. So that allows you to water all your whole garden without ever having to draw an energy bill, or mm-hmm. I'm sorry, a Department of Environmental Protection bill, which is essentially the water issuing authority. So the idea that we don't have to ever use a hose mm-hmm. to water all of the stuff that I have on there. And my whole roof is, anybody that's been there, we call it the Garden of Breeden. There's, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. We have sugar maple. We have uh, Japanese wisteria. There's uh, strawberries, a lemon tree. Uh, plums, just you name it. And we need to get stuff. you in touch with um, our activist for pawpaws, Neil Peterson, and see if we can get you a pawpaw tree going on in Brooklyn. Sounds pretty good. That would be awesome. <laughs> totally. But anyway, so so the idea that you've got this water, 
What happens to it when it rains? Okay, it, it goes into the sewers, washes through the streets. It might give the streets a bath or two, which seems great. But what happens is any water that can't get absorbed into the sewer system is admissibly dumped into the rivers. Mm-hmm. Of course, living on the end of Long Island, all that water goes right into the East River or maybe in the Hudson on the other side and then flows right down past the beaches that we enjoy during the summer. Mm-hmm. So the idea that when there's a heavy rainfall and you're swimming in the ocean a couple of days after that, you're probably dealing with higher than normal amounts of nasty stuff wow. this can be disease causing bacteria this can be um yeah, i mean just would you yeah would, yeah would you want to take a, a bath in the water that's going down the street well essentially you're doing that when you go after the after the water is uh, has reached a certain saturation so point we go out to the rockaways or something yeah it does it does it does make rain. you reconsider the coney island experience yeah Ooh. well for other reasons yeah <laughs> but so the idea that instead of having that all the roofs discharging all their water right into the sewers and then right into the rivers at one time the idea of managing your stormwater is keeping it reservoired in one or more uh, receptacles. The mm-hmm. easiest way to do it is a big old trash can, um, maybe a big trash can to a couple of paint buckets, whatever. Then that water, the first benefit is that you get to use it to water all your wonderful greenery you have on your roof. The second benefit is that instead of releasing all that water at one time, it's slowly discharging it uh, first through the plants and then it might end up making it back in. But if it's getting discharged over the period when it's not intense rain, mm-hmm. it's much less likely to wind up in the water table or, or eventually, in the eventually streets to the, or in the beaches and all that. Exactly. Awesome. So that's kind of the main, the main emphasis behind trying to do. And other than me just being lazy and not wanting to take a five gallon bucket and walk <laughs> between my shower and out the window, you know, five times a day, because totally. it takes a lot of water out there in the garden. <laughs> yeah. And it's heavy. It sure is. <laughs> it is. So what what's green walling? Is this is this a similar like what 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 is green walling? Green walling is uh, a term applied to the use of growing things vertically along a wall or at least part of a wall for the same reasons that somebody might do a green roof mm-hmm. um, in order to keep the rays of sun from going directly onto your uh, your your roofing membrane or your wall membrane. You're having them strike the photosynthetic cells in the leaf. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks prettier. Uh, when it blows, the wind kind of goes there. Birds jump into it, you know, and hang out. And you can you can see, you know, if, if you encourage them to go up the, the bars of your window, well, you're looking out essentially through like a nice little green mask as opposed to whatever sort of view you have, which may or may not be pretty in this particular part of the world. So we'd be familiar with like the IV. Like- sure. IV is a real common one. Um, and it does look really, really beautiful when it's fully, like, it's just totally, uh, a building's utterly bedecked with, uh, mm-hmm. with that sort of stuff. But the, but the problem is, is that there's different types of uh, climbing mechanisms that these plants will use. Mm-hmm. You have, uh, there are kind of non-invasive and then there's more invasive species. I'm definitely not an expert on what are the different types. But for example, the Virginia creeper is commonly known to be a non-root invasive um, that can go up a brick wall. Okay by using little footprints, kind of like a gecko's feet, to get in and get a purchase so that it's getting higher and higher. But it's not actually trying to exploit cracks in oh, the, the mortar courses and going in and, and screwing up the, the long-term you know, potential for your brick wall. Wow. So, for example, there are types of ivies that, in addition to getting their water from their, bait, their base of root, which might be 20 foot down, mm-hmm. in order to, to, do the, to pass the savings along, they'll attempt to, to find and exploit little niches and, and little cracks in the actual wall to try to get water. Kind imagine. of like spider veins or something sure, coming out precisely. of like a big root. Well, imagine, you know, a jungle tree that's just, um, you know, it's the higher and higher it gets, the longer it has to transport water all the way down. Mm-hmm. It would be a great savings in its energetic output to just squeeze little fingers into whatever tree it's growing on and pull water out that way. So so you really have to be careful what is climbing in your building. Um, 
you know, for yeah, and, in, and, infrastructure wise. I exactly. mean, you see roots coming up all the time where yeah. in those sidewalk you have a split mm-hmm. sidewalk because you yep. know that oak tree got too big. Yeah, to f- they. I mean, trees and things that are growing are just slowly wrecking anything that they that that that's getting between them and their water or light source. Yeah. And in the case of like, for example, wisteria, beautiful climbing plant. It's commonly trellised above, like a little uh, like a garden, like an area to have like a tea in the morning. If those things actually get up onto a telephone wire. <laughs> where they can't be cut or where it's illegal for you to go up, they will grow into like an elephant-sized thing that just eventually will just probably just collapse. The friggin- I mean, I've, <laughs> I've actually cut them down where it took me about three hours to cut a wisteria off of a telephone pole. And when I finally climbed down, I, I f- just fell into about a five-foot deep pile of just cut wisteria because it just was so out of control and it was essentially choking the tree. Did it, uh, did it cushion your fall? It did. I actually <laughs> saw it down there and I did like the little like nest tea <laughs> plunge, like fell back into it. It was quite nice. So is, is improving the energy efficiency of a building the main reason why, why someone would put a green wall on it? Um, it's one of the reasons. Uh, if in combination with a green roof, you know, a green, a green roof, of course, um, like I said, mentioned earlier, it's pretty uh, cost and resource intensive to get it done. A green wall in the sense that you're seeing them now where there's actually little fern indentions and, and growing medium that's uh, put vertically, that's, I guess, that's a possibility. But in the case of what we're trying to do in my building, we're just literally trying to get as much green coverage climbing up the side through trellises and through little pieces of wire strung here and there. So it's not actually living in the sense that you would have little parts that are elevated at 10 feet and they need to be watered or so forth. It's literally all starting from, from, from planters, but they're going up. But you mentioned it correctly. You will have less direct sunlight beating down the side of your building. Uh, maybe the wind that's hitting it and whisking away whatever warm molecules are there during the winter. I mean, there are some, for example, we use one of the one of my favorites for, uh, for growing that I would recommend is a Japanese honeysuckle that retains its green foliage all year. It never dies back, stays green. It doesn't grow during the winter, um, but as soon as the spring starts, it does its next little wave of growths. And, it just, and it's a beautiful thing to put right on the actual metal um, bars, like the security bars in your window. Because again, it'll just furl up through those. You're looking at your kitchen at this nice little green sort of thing. And um, every now and then a little, uh, a little bird will come and like kick back in there and like wonder whether the, the jungle extends inside the house. As <laughs> edge. So... So New York is lays pretty much in the middle between the cities that have taken the most advancements towards greening their landscapes and the cities to which it's to which the movement still hasn't really arrived. Mm-hmm. What what are some of the examples of other cities where urban greening has really like reached its reached its apotheosis and some of the cities where in some of the some of the the continents where it's where this kind of thinking still hasn't even been exported to i think chicago keeps coming up as the most in the united states as far as the green roof kind of movement uh, chicago keeps coming up as a as a as a really strategically like progressively thinking city where they're really i mean their entire city hall if you look at pictures of it, it's like a massive like city block sized area where this beautiful uh intensive green roof that you can walk up on and you know take a coffee break up on. It's beautiful. The United States, however, I think is probably pretty far behind another couple of countries I would mention. Uh, the Netherlands being uh, and Germany being two. They're that, the best that to mind. They're pretty well. They have it. They have a technologically advanced um, infrastructure. They have. Um, in the case of the Dutch, I mean, the Dutch. No Dutch person lives 
above about you know two meters above the sea. Mm-hmm. So global Quality warming, life is so much global warming affects them in a way that it can be ignored perhaps elsewhere. Um, you've got yeah, so so you've got a, you've got a fairly wealthy nations um, that are forward thinking and that are actually and and you know the idea of doing a green roof is something that's come into vogue uh, if, in terms of people talking about it. It's which is great. It's lip service. It's creating a buzz and so forth. But I mean, you'll see green roofs in the Netherlands that have been there. I mean, they suggest just by their topography and forms. I mean, you're looking at essentially a forest that's on the top of the roof and it's mm-hmm. been there for decades. Um, so they're pretty much, it's always a treat to just see what sort of interesting uh, growing membranes they've got up there on the roof. And I think they actually, ha- there, there's a certain, um, I might be totally wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that there's some sort of governmentally imposed mandate that new structures required to have a certain percentage of coverage of greenery or else they just don't in the get Netherlands. Past. In the Netherlands, I and think that hasn't hit the United States yet. Um, not yet, there's as far only as small I know. Things like tax incentives. I think that's right. There, there's rebates. Uh, the New York City, I think, last year started a rebate program where they will subsidize a certain percentage of your green roof if you choose to have it, you know, engineered and done the right way. Hmm. Um, it ends up being a pretty big savings. But the real savings, I think, is the long term when your heating and cooling costs over, let's say, 10 or 15 years are drastically reduced because you're just keeping hot sun from beating down during the summer and warm air from getting out because it's a thicker, like a growing living medium during the winter. So this whole movement that we're trying to try like, you know, move forward with here in the United States, it's almost like kind of going back to our roots in the sense, like not our roots personally, but in like you know, the Netherlands, for instance, they've been doing it not necessarily for the same reasons that we're now trying to promote this. They just had this happening. It was natural. And now we're just like kind of following in their footsteps. But we're kind of making it like a movement because it makes sense. Would you sure. Say that? And making sense as in like the, the pronunciation or the spelling with C-E-N-T-S. I mean, once you you almost have to dangle the, the financial carrot in front of a lot of building owners because uh, the ethical or, one just isn't—it just doesn't come doesn't up for them. some strange reason. I mean, you know, greed can run in a bunch of directions, mm-hmm. and 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 even and but even if that's the motivation mm-hmm. that somebody is deciding to finally do the right thing, so to speak, mm-hmm. that's that's enough. Right. Um, and I think I, I can't I can't I'm not going to make some sort of blanket generalization that mm-hmm. you know the Dutch have a better ethicals, you know, but whatever they they just it just I think they probably have had a certain awareness of it earlier. Um, and that awareness probably also has to do with making money. I mean, the Dutch are famously good business people, right? I mm-hmm. mean, so, but there must, there, there must be some sort of halfway point between trying to make the best investment and trying to do the best thing right. that's, that, that kind of has a nice marriage. Somewhere. It's kind of similar to like the whole slow food movement, like bringing it mm-hmm. back to the earth. You know, mm-hmm. it sounds like with what we're doing, we're kind of just bringing it back to what traditional, you sure. know, Dutch, not necessarily settlers, but sure. builders were doing. Yep. And that's why these making gardens. do with what you have and trying yeah. to make that last as long as possible. And that's a, that's a basic kind of utilitarian yeah, uh, emphasis. Sure. We're all kind of moving backwards to move forwards right, every right. day. Sometimes you have to do that, for yeah. sure. So you mentioned briefly to me the greenest building in the world being in Denmark. And, uh, I found and, this and the Netherlands. The Netherlands yeah. It's in the Netherlands. Can you sure. tell me about this building? Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a fairly prominent, at least in Holland, architect uh, who actually is a friend of mine's father. Uh, he has a plan that's being developed right now into full-scale fruition that's for the greenest building in the Netherlands. And that's, that's, that's the quote. The, um, mm. 
I don't know that it would be the greenest in the world, but you could probably uh, guesstimate that it might be since the Netherlands is so advanced in this sort of thing. Or at least compared to Sure, months. relatively. Yeah, this, the, the, the building, the, the, the plans that I saw, uh, the, the architect's name, uh, by the way, is uh, Jon Christensen, who's actually, he's Icelandic Dutch. He teaches at Delft University um, in, in the Netherlands. Um, he and his wife uh, have an architecture firm that's just remarkable. They do a lot of um, really beautiful um, kind of repurposing of old structures. Um, he's developed uh, single-handedly, he's developed a really remarkable technology for breathing windows, which will allow air to pass through, but not to, 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 to take the temperature down or high. It's this, this remarkable system that he basically has patented. So he's um, a scientist as well. He's, a, he's, I don't know if you could say scientist per se. He's definitely a scientifically oriented engineer. Right. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, he also was the first to turn me onto the idea of the idea of a triplet system, like a water system where there's uh, black water, gray water, and white water, where you're essentially, the idea of black water is, well, I think it's now pronounced uh, chi, it's, isn't that the, uh, the, the former uh, defense contractor? Anyway, black water is, is the wastewater. This is sewer, this is stuff that comes out of the toilet, this is stuff that needs to be dealt with and ferreted away somewhere. But you don't have to just flush it down the proverbial toilet and get rid of it. You can actually take measures to reconstitute it to some extent to make it used for fertilizer, to make it essentially what's called gray water. Gray water can be used to, uh, to water plants. Uh, it can be used for certain uh, like irrigation sorts of things. If you, it's non-potable, basically. It's non-potable, but I think in some cases, um, you know, if you're gonna, if, if it's not, if it's not really, I mean, you could probably wash your car with it. You know, it's not. Sure. You definitely don't want to take a drink of it. Mm -hmm. um, but gray water, I think, can be turned back into white water, which is of the stuff that you're, you know, drinking, the stuff that you're cooking with, stuff so forth. So. I've never heard these terms before. Yeah, I, I never had either until I was looking and he was he was bandying them about with such regularity to suggest that these are things that have been on his mind for decades. But for I, you know, I only heard about it a few years ago. So anyway, this black, white, and gray water system allows each of the buildings that are kind of um, these modularly attached kind of modern Dutch structures allows them to uh, use the actual the breaking down of the molecular action in the black water, turning it into gray water, to use that as a source of energy. So and then and then there are different stages. Um, you know, this is not it's not as though you just add a, a pill to the black water and suddenly it becomes a gray water. But there are things where you can be um, you can be running it through a series of uh, filtration systems that involve living membranes. Certain plants that are able to take out certain of the uh, the bad toxins. stuff toxins. Of course, you probably wouldn't want to have a, a tomato plant down there, and because because you know, but for for, for something that's literally um, wicking some of the bad stuff out, and what's passing through it is in a slightly higher, you know, this is this can be a piecemeal sort of process yeah, like that can constantly be uh, re recycling the water. It's like a filtration system. In itself, sure is a living 100%. a living filtration that system. Is really, I mean, remarkable. he's he basically has well among this this the similar movement in the Netherlands, they essentially have engineered like a kind of a natural. If I can invoke a, a biological explanation, like almost like a kidney, a living, like this mm -hmm. big thing that's just taking stuff through, filtering out, and uh, what comes. Would that out be of the liver? The liver. No. Yeah. What did the kidneys do again? <laughs> I don't know. But people give those things away all the time, so they can't similar. be that important. That's God gave you too. <laughs> they have to do with blood pressure. The kidneys. Exactly. Exactly. So it's the liver that we right. all like to kill. But the, sometimes. but the but the to, to your uh, before our digression, your your question about the, the the greenest building in the Netherlands is this remarkable structure that I've only seen um, blueprints of. It's an airline hangar-sized 
building that is largely, it looks like it's largely sheathed with glass, which is one of the concerns where the less walls you have, the more light can pass through and then the less lights you need on during the day. But it's, right. it's electrical signature. It's so, so by day, imagine, imagine the roof of this is kind of tilted uh, in a certain angle towards the sun. So it's like a southerly facing uh, roof. There's, there's that a has, building like that in New York, right? Like the Chase building? Um, that New Rivington building, right? That building yeah, down I on think the Lower East Side, that. the blue yeah, yeah. one. Um, we mm-hmm. could try and, uh, for all you listeners out there, we'll, we'll put an address so that you can check it out somewhere like on Google Maps or right, something. Right, right. But yeah, yeah for so sure. So it's got a tilted roof. It's got a tilted roof towards the south. Uh, this gives it maximum flat exposure towards the sun as it's making its path. Um, but the roof itself, if I can try to describe it, it's easier for you guys because you can see my hands motioning. But it's basically mm-hmm. like a corrugated surface that has these big troughs. The, the, the troughs are actually parabolic arches, which are taking sunlight and bouncing it to these filaments that actually are in the middle of each of the, um, I guess, right in the middle of each of the parabolic arches. So let's say that the it's entire... It's like a tanning roof, sheet. Kind it's of. like a huge tanning sheet that's, that's maybe 100 or so meters wide. And then that hundred so meters has maybe ten or twelve Surf, actual like area. yeah it's almost like the sort of thing that if you took a skateboard up there you could start doing some crazy stuff. <laughs> but anyway, what this this has a twofold purpose. The one is that it's actually generating uh, solar energy by day, and even in a non really bright sunny day. And of course, in the Netherlands, you don't get many of those. It's similar to like Pacific Northwest in a lot of ways, but you can still be generating heat by day, con- uh, storing that energy. But the thing that's amazing about it is that at night. When the temperature changes and the surface uh, starts to condense water, it's this. It's made of this revolutionary material. I think it's like a like a some sort of a, a really highly polished metal or something. It actually the differences in temperature, kind of like condensating on the, a water on a glass. Water will start to form in these paraboculatures and then be collected down below, so that it essentially is generating water out of just thin air. So it's it's water. It, the, I, I read the list of all the its footprint. So essentially, it has zero water footprint. It has, and of course, down below it in the guts, so to speak, are these black water to, to gray water, gray water to white water, um, as well as geothermal heating and cooling, which is just another totally remarkable thing that we're not even getting close to in this country yet. It's a huge, it's a, it's a massive, uh, well, not massive, it's, it goes down maybe 100 or so meters into the ground, just generating and, and, and taking cold water, heating it up down there and pumping it back up. And also, uh, it can be it can be used to, to heat and cool um, water as well as air. So there's the air conditioning oh, or the, or the yeah, heating and so forth. Because you need the water to make the, the heat or the Precisely. air conditioning. Precisely. And then the, then the water can be pumped. You can take some of the gray water that you're generating and use that as the stuff that's getting pumped to the radiators. Because, you know, the, what's going into the radiator doesn't need to be of pristine quality. All right. So is this in patented yet? <laughs> he is in the process of building it along with a, a consortium of firms. And I don't know when their expected uh, finish date is, but it's probably not anytime soon. I mean, this yeah. thing was massive. And then, of course, it's going to be retail shops it's going to be probably residential wow. looking at the little graphics of it it looks uh, it looks pretty remarkable and i apologize uh, i apologize yon if you're listening i apologize for getting the technical aspects of your project wrong <laughs> well, <laughs> but you get the drift <laughs> yeah as long as you're allowed to be sharing this information exactly exactly right. yeah. well maybe we can have him on we have an architecture show with curtis wayne and it would be great if maybe we can get a call in from you know um, i'm sure another you would love country. to talk about we would it. just have to figure yeah. out the time zones exactly i mean well, because somebody'd have to stay up late <laughs> yeah well, actually, now is not that late in the Netherlands. Yeah, what is it? Six hours it's ahead? It's plus, what, plus yeah, seven so or so? Yeah. 10.30 at night yeah, there? Yeah. We can make that happen. He just I think. got a glass of, uh, of uh, Geneva in his hand. He's ready. He's ready. <laughs> I'll probably call him right now. <laughs> awesome. So, 
And can you touch upon briefly, touch briefly upon vertical farming, and mm-hmm. can you also tie it into these sort of these gnarly new buildings? I mean, what do you think the city of 2050 is going to look like? Do you think it's going to be mm-hmm. drastically different from how it is now? It'll definitely be drastically different. I mean, there's, I guess, one kind of pessimistic view of 2050 where we won't need to help cities look green anymore. They're going to be kind of overtaken by jungles and, and weeds and so forth. Um, but if we are still around, <laughs> if we are still around... Let's assume and, we are. <laughs> let's assume we are. And that our, that our current attempts at making things more sustainable and greener and so forth, if those Eventually continue... have an impact. So that not only will the ideas that we have, uh, w- w- hopefully there'll be new technologies that will arise that will become commercially available um, and then we'll make the ones we're talking about now look obsolete. Sure. Yeah, we'll remember having this conversation. God, you remember when we thought that those green roofs was a great idea? Well, oh. that's what's so fun that we're sitting here right now on you know nine eleven of 09. And 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you're going to go onto the website as long as the interweb is still working, which mm-hmm. I have no doubt it will be. Mm-hmm. And you're going to see that these conversations started at this time and look where we've gone yep. from there. So I hope we will be uh, just totally amazed at how naive and uh, how much we didn't know because that just means we're hopefully learning a lot more every year we're alive. I think every single day. Yeah. But but the 2050 idea, is, it's, a, it's a kind of an interesting thought experiment. So our, our, our buildings you know, are they going to get bigger as the era of the skyscraper such as it is? Is that, is that a, is that a not going to happen as much in the future? Yeah, is it necessary? Yeah. Is it necessary? Um, whatever those, th- those are kind of separate questions, but mm-hmm. I think that whatever sort of, it's obvious that we're going to continue to grow as cities. We're going to continue to have more people. We're also going to continue to feel the pinch of, uh, gas pricing and so forth. The idea of having there to be a substantial number of edible products being produced in the city as opposed to being imported from elsewhere makes sense in a lot of different directions. Mm-hmm. A, it's just fun to grow your own stuff. B, the more stuff you grow of your own stuff, the more that you can actually, uh, the more that you can actually get. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. The more the more stuff that you're growing yourself, the less you have to rely on uh, on kind of agro business or things being driven from upstate. The, the, the smaller footprint left behind exactly. by consumption. And it's just let's face it, it's just it's just it's just fun to grow your own stuff. It's fun to bring kids to check out and then to to, to imagine you know some of our young gardeners programs we do just with trees not trash. We'll end up having like these kids come over, and they'll. They're totally blown away to see a tomato just sitting out there that they can just pull off the vine and just eat. And it tastes better than any tomato that they had at the store. And they're like, where did that come from? And like, you're looking at it. Right here. Well, it's kind of like what Alice Waters tried to do with the peaches out sure. in uh, California with Frog Hollow Farm. Remember? With, like, I don't she, remember hearing about well, that. Well, it was an article. It was in the Times maybe like four years ago. I might, I might be totally wrong, but basically she was, you know, she tries to change the way that the children eat. So instead of eating candy, she's like, well, I'll give you the sweetest peach you've ever tasted. And it mm-hmm. came from, you know, 20 miles up in Brentwood, California. And unfortunately, the kids were like, oh, wait, but it's fuzzy. So they didn't want to necessarily eat it. But then, right. you know, we're, we're, right. we're, we're moving forward from that point. Sure, sure, sure. But it's the same idea. I mean, people right. have to really start understanding that there's more to what, mm-hmm. they're, what they're exposed to. Right, absolutely. I mean, especially, you know, city kids, they may or may not have a, a, an intuitive idea of where their food is coming from. I mean, even those of us that really try to know where our food is coming from probably don't know unless we're really, really doing our homework and really, really being industrious to make sure that it's coming from our known locations. I know. There's only yeah. so much you can trace, and uh, exactly. unless it's coming from your own backyard, yeah. it's yeah. sometimes hard to do that. Yeah. But it's um, awesome that we have a call in for you, Mr. Matt Lorenz. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's let's patch him in. Hello. Hi, I have a question. Hello. Thanks for calling. Um, 
I want to know is uh, is do you guys see a future where there's no farmland anymore? Everything is grown in urban environments because of like fuel costs or you know man-made disasters or natural disasters. I mean, are we looking at a future where 100% of our food is produced in urban or suburban areas? Well, it's probably um, that's 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 a, question, that's an caller. amazing amazing question. My guess is that. There will probably be an increase in the number of urban uh, gardening sort of apparatus, but my guess is that it'll never entirely move from the countries to the cities because there's always, first of all, there's always going to be people living in the country. Right, and um, who's building those buildings? Right, sure. Um, <laughs> and then we're, we're happy we have the same problem. How do we get the, the produce from the city to right. the country? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it might it might start this uh, grassroots movement from the uh, the urban uh, or the, uh, the, the 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 kind of the country people like that are already you know, doing something on another yeah, scale. Exactly. To then do something in their own house. Exactly. Or we're the sick. Of, of we're sick of getting all house. of our we're sick of getting all of our produce from these darn city gardens. We're going to start doing it ourselves. Again. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe like our sponsor today, Paradise Soccer Meats, for example, will someday be uh, growing the vegetables on top and you right. know cutting the meat downstairs right no i so to answer your question caller i I imagine that that it will increase and you would only hope that it would increase to such an extent that we would not have to really think about having there be a big transportation cost overhead like overlying our uh, our where we eat um but it probably will never be a hundred percent it probably will it will get to a certain plateau and then it'll probably level off now this may be an obvious question to you but it's something I've been thinking about, and I'm sure to an urban farmer such as yourself, it's like, how could you not know the answer to this? But w- rainwater over urban areas is more dense in pollution, isn't it? I mean, all the stuff that comes out of our cars goes into the condensed clouds and then comes back down in the rainwater, doesn't it? So, I mean, how does that affect the kind of produce that is grown in cities? I mean, do we want to be eating tomatoes that were hydrated with water that's got all sorts of nasty stuff in it? That's a good point. I often um, look at the stuff that condenses at the bottom of my um, my soup, my uh, stormwater reclamation mm-hmm. um, barrels. Your garbage and cans now. The garbage cans, exactly. <laughs> I applied a fancy term to that, but I often look. I often look at the bottom of that, and there's this kind of silt that's down there. And this is, of course, dust. You know, burned up tires, chunks of carbon, so forth. It lands on the roof, and then it gets blown down there, oh and then it just collects down there. But the thing that's interesting. It's funny that that's landing on your roof. It's landing on my roof. Rubber is landing on the roof. Even in the court, yeah, like aerosolized little chunks of carburetors and like transmissions are are going into my garden. And that's a concern. How many stories is your building? It's just a three story building. But still, come on, it's blowing around. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But so I think, um, I think that stuff certainly it's not. uh, You know, you wouldn't want to take a a cup of it and just drink it. Um, But there's another interesting thing that happens where after a couple of days that the water has been in these big uh, cisterns and it starts to kind of generate a little bit of an algae sort of growth, Mm -hmm. kind of like a little bit of a greenish growth. I'm not 100% sure, and I would hate to find out to the contrary, but I'm pretty sure that that's got to be at least something of a, in the way of a fertilizer. Maybe I'm just kind of um, looking through rose-colored glasses and saying, wow, this is, this is an, an, adding some fertilizer to my water. But it is kind of a greenish sort of algae that, or some sort of... Um, some sort of growth that just basically is at the bottom of the barrel. So, you know, you, you mix that up. And when you get down there, you're like, hmm, I'm going to give this to the plant that looks like it really needs a little shot in the arm because maybe that could be the little bit of extra nutrients that's going you in there. You don't know because it is yeah. carbon and... Yeah, and- yeah. But, the, but that's a good question. Like, we, I think in the cities, you know, you do have a lot more of a just, uh, just an, an unadulteratedly 
more polluted environments. I mean, you know, just talk about the the earth here in Bushwick. Um, if there's any uh, gardeners out there that are that are considering, hey, I've got this, you know, a little bit of a backyard. I cleared away a bunch of wreckage in a, you know, an old gutted taxi. You probably don't want to start growing edible stuff in there Mm-mm. right away until you can get it tested. Yeah, you um, want to dig up that land. You want to dig it up, or if or you, if you don't, or you just build entirely. One of the main uh, things that we've done over the last couple of years is just build big planter boxes that are raised that have a vapor barrier between whatever sort of soil that you don't know about and the soil that you're growing. Uh, and then get uh, the soil from a source that you know. Yeah. Um, and then you can have raised beds with all that same surface area of the whole backyard. Um, but you're but you're taking a little bit less of a risk with your stuff, right? And I don't know if it's just you, um, but that they, that they donate wood to. But maybe you could um, shout out again your guys. And I think you said Flushing or Queens. That um, that's right. Build it wood. green. Build it green. Astoria. It's uh-huh. a remarkable place. Um, hi, Big guys, if you're listening. Um, those guys are incredible. They have a huge um, hangar sized warehouse up in Astoria in Queens. Mm-hmm. I guess the extreme northwest corner of Queens. Um, and it's just all refurbished uh, stuff, whether it's building materials, whether it's old set design things that are wow. no longer being used, doors, windows, um, virtually everything. Would they take old picture frame moldings? You think? I'm not sure what wood. their I'm not sure what their how their protocol is for for getting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, they may. T- I, I, I mean, I, I always I always bring stuff up there just to give them because I mean, because if they you give you so much, they've the, the, the guys have come to parties at our house and they just are taken aback by what percentage of stuff in my building is from Build It Green. I mean, it is literally not just repro. It's, it's literally from Build It Green, right? Because and, the prices are right. They're really awesome guys, and they're doing the right thing. And and these are all you know. When somebody's replacing a high-end bathroom with a higher-end bathroom, and they're just throwing everything away, True. those guys will pull up and get, and they'll pull, One they'll man's extract. Trash this. is another man's oh, treasure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and you know, people that are doing set design, they sleuth out things there. They're looking for, you know, a payphone to rent for a set, or they're looking for an old police locker or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's sweet. I bought a uh, I bought a rail there for a bike rack that uh, evidently was used in a Madonna event. There was a big. There was like fifty gold uh, glittered like four by eight pieces of plywood that are used for a Kanye West video. Yeah, who So knows? like, hey, if you want a big piece of three quarter inch plywood that costs half as much as it would at Home Depot, go up to Build It Green. And it may have been uh, used and danced on by uh, some of your favorite you might see s- stars. You might see some booty shaking next time, you know, <laughs> next time you look at that that piece of wood, it might have been uh, used but in a video. this place is open for the public and for all of our listeners who want to go It sure is. It sure is. Look it up. Build It Green New York City, I believe is the site. Um, Great. Well, we'll find it. We'll double check and we'll put it up stuff. on our site because that's yeah. really cool. You know, there's plenty of people trying to um you know reproduce what you're talking mm-hmm. about here today and we'd love to spread yeah. the good word sure and, and i'll give another quick plug to yeah. m fine lumber which oh, is we right love here them. oh you guys have used them too right yeah, m so fine awesome. is the best they i mean were. our studio you're looking yep. at it right there here that's m fine m fine we got jeff he comes in on fridays for pizza now yep they're really good to us they're awesome they'll they'll do you right like yep. m fine for those that don't know it's a, a huge massive um again refurbished wood extracted wood building membranes it's more on the kind of structural end than build a green is build a greens like plumbing stuff and electrical mm-hmm. stuff this is strictly lumber and it's friggin it's things that have been like civil war era Re- beams oh. that are coming out of like old crazy lofts I mean, and you can get it for cheap and they're really good guys take like a, an old slab of wood and you will make the most beautiful yep. table and yep. benches that if you go to some antique store you are going to pay thousands of dollars for people will people will shell out way more money for those sorts of yeah. things than go they buy to. a big slab learn yep. how to drill it in yourself yep. and you've got yourself the most like beautiful antique or to tie in refurbished. the uh, to tie in the third plug that that 
Trees Not Trash, we were given uh, a sum of money uh, by the city or actually by citizens. um, And they gave us some money to do uh, garden boxes and planters on all the, all the trees out here on, uh, on, uh, on Bogart. Um, So we were able to go to M fine lumber. We were able to go to BIG. We got a bunch Hmm. of uh, just huge chunks of lumber. We invested in a bunch of, uh, you know, some, 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 some tools and some, uh, some screws and washers and so forth. And we were able to build these nice little, uh, little seats that that many people are being, people are using them right now. Well, maybe not in the rain, but the one sitting next to me right here, Mr. Lorenzo, he smokes cigarettes out there probably (laughs) once a week or once a show. Once a a minute. It's nice to know that they're being used. (laughs) They definitely are. And they add so much to the aesthetic of the sure. block and you know this place right around where we are broadcasting from right mm-hmm. now is only continuing mm-hmm. to grow every right. day and you know well we uh, we were finishing our last bench on one of the open uh, Bushwick Art Studios things and there were people sitting on our benches like before they were even screwed <laughs> we were like, like wait hold up. on you're gonna flip over into the foliage be careful <laughs> and they're like oh it's okay I won't feel it anyway that's right no very cool well this we want to thank you for joining us, Matt. We have to wrap up the show now. Mm-hmm. Actually, we're a little over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so we want all our listeners to check this out on the archives at www.heritageradionetwork.com slash archives. We want to thank our sponsor, Paradise Locker Meats, keeping it real in Trimble. We want to keep uh, those call-ins coming, so feel free to call us anytime, Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at 718-497-2128. And Mr. Matt Lorenz, we would love to have you on again, maybe um, you know, in the next season, to talk about you know what um, new things are happening, because sure. it seems like you've got something new every that day. That sounds great. We've got a program with the uh, with the Bushwick Public Library I mentioned that we're really excited about, so I'll, I'll yeah. give you a little report on how I would that's love going an update on that that sounds, sounds like a great project so and a shout out to our engineer Nat Wiener yep everybody's talking at me I don't hear what they're saying only the echo